Welcome to City of God, a podcast of the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Dr. Owen Strand, and I'll be your host. Join us each week as we engage the city of man with the biblical wisdom of the city of God. Welcome to City of God. Today on the podcast, my guest is Colin Hansen, a dear friend of mine. Colin Hansen serves as editorial director for the Gospel Coalition. He's the author of numerous books, including the Just Out 15 Things Seminary Couldn't Teach Me. Our conversation today is going to focus on his recent book, Our Secular Age, 10 Years of Reading and Applying Charles Taylor. He's also the author of the now, I guess we can say it's a classic book, Colin, Young, Restless, and Reformed. Uh, it's weird to talk about that in terms of being a, a classic, but I think it kind of is, right? Well, I mean, it's 10 years. It's been uh, 10 years since the book, 12 years since the original article came out in Christianity Today. Um, it's been certainly much discussed and much debated, and I, I will say classic in this sense, Owen. It's definitely a dated book. <laughs> I mean, it definitely comes from a, a, a moment in time. Um, which is a fun, fun moment in time for me to think about because it's certainly the formative time that was in just my life, my career, but also because it came out while we were together in seminary. So it was really, really a, a fun time for me. Yeah, that's exactly right. We were both at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in uh, North Chicago, Illinois, and uh, I had already, like so many, read your CT piece. It came out of nowhere like a like a shotgun blast of truth, just capturing this movement of God in a generation, and then ended up going to Trinity uh, to do a PhD and met you there and became good friends with you. So that was, a, that was a real blessing for me, and I continue to see all sorts of ways in which your analysis uh, captured that, that moment in time and even continues uh, to define where we are today. But that we're going to save for just a little bit later <laughs> because this book, Our Secular Age, is a very important one. It's on maybe the most important philosopher of our time. I'd put Roger Scruton up there, some others we could name, Alistair mm-hmm. McIntyre and some others. But um, Charles Taylor is a really important philosopher for the thoughtful, thinking Christian to be aware of, so much so in your view that you've edited an entire book uh, really on on one book of his. Can you tell us where your own interest and the Gospel Coalition's interest uh, came from in terms of producing this this book, Our Secular Age? Well, thanks, Owen. So, it, interestingly, there's actually a connection between Young Restless Reformed and A Secular Age. So, mm. A Secular Age also came out 10 years ago. So, I think just a, a formative time for me in my thinking and just trying to understand what was happening in the world and is still happening in our world. Um, but here's the connection, Owen. So, when I'm reading through, um, when I'm, I'm going around the country interviewing people from about you know 2006 through 2008, the Young Restless Reformed, I'm asking everybody, why is this happening now? Now, I understand that Reformed theology, I believe it to be true. I believe it to be biblical. Certainly it has a long historical legacy. Mm-hmm. But I said, but why is it happening right now? And you know what? I published that book in 2008 only without getting an answer to it. I, I never, nobody ever gave me that answer, but Charles Taylor is the one who helped me give the answer when I read his book, A Secular Age, a little bit later, because I started to understand something. He talks about this disenchanted world that we live in, and more or less the anthropological turn, um, that instead of being living in a universe that is centered on God, on the mysterious, 
um, on his inscrutable ways. Instead, everything is focused on the self. Everything we justify, I mean, everything has to be justified by how it affects us and who we are and how we feel and our own limited horizons. But I realize that Reformed theology offers an escape from that world. It draws you into this world where God's providence is mysterious um, and where God is transcendent in his glory, in his might, in his power and his wonder, and certainly in his work of redemption in Christ Jesus. Um, but indeed, his, his work of redemption that has continued from the beginning of time and will continue until Christ's return unto eternity. And it was that when I realized, okay, so in this secular age, you can either you can either try to turn God into some kind of palatable version of yourself. <laughs> and when I was writing this book, the two alternatives were basically the emerging church, which was changing all this evangelical theology, or the seeker church, which was casting all of church life basically in our own image and really just trying to use a lot of entertainment and stuff to captivate um, attention. I realized that Reformed theology was truly tackling the, the, the main challenge of our time, which was to be able to worship a God on his own terms and not on our terms. And it was Charles Taylor, this, this elderly Canadian Roman Catholic philosopher of secularism, um, that helped me to understand that connection. Yeah, you write in, uh, in our secular age, the edited volume produced by TGC and edited by you, you write this. The key theological question for our secular age, then, is this. Does God get to be God? It's really fascinating to hear you talk about this, this legacy of your own project and then, of course, of Taylor's work, because so many of the people you interviewed and who are our peers who are gripped by the big God of the Bible over the last, I don't know, 15 years, 20 years or so, wouldn't actually have known the, the, all the intellectual currents that are running through our society and culture that have positioned us actually in, in a kind of you-catastrophical way, to, to work off of Tolkien here, to be ready, actually, for big God theology. I sense today that there are many people who have a hunger for transcendence, let's put it that way, and that hunger is not going away, actually. In other words, a lot of people, with your characterization of basically, I'll call it our movement, as Young, Restless, and Reform said, oh, no, this movement is a fad. It's just that, you know, the doctrines of grace for a brief moment in time became cool, and it's going to fizzle. Now, uh, I'll admit that there probably was some sizzle factor to the YRR phenomenon. You might as well. We'll hear your answer in just a minute. But I actually think, (laughs) I actually think the deep currents that Taylor has described and that you and your fellow authors in our secular age are capturing, capturing well, I might add, are not going away, but are going only deeper. In other words, people's lives are becoming more and more disenchanted, not, not, not more enchanted by secularism. Do you think that's accurate? Yeah, well, just think about this, Owen. So when I wrote, uh, when I wrote Young Mrs. Reformed, when Taylor was writing A Secular Age, there were no smartphones, or at least they weren't <laughs> ubiquitous yeah. at the time. So just think about this. I mean, the, the imagery speaks for itself. We spend our lives walking around hunched over these little screens, yeah. and our entire world is captured inside of this little rectangle. Instead of looking at one another, 
or instead of, as you would have in, in any time until relatively recently, instead of looking to the heavens. Mm. So just imagine that visual shift. Oh, and for almost all of human history, you would look to the heavens because from the heavens would come your sustenance or would come your judgment or would come your deliverance um, through the weather. Or, and then, or, they, or you would look to the horizon because your enemies might come from that direction or your deliverance, again, might come from that direction. Or you look at the people next to you because ultimately um, that's your survival right there, the people next to you. But now we are, like I said, hunched over looking at our phones. And so the, the, the transcendence-starved nature of our world is only, is only growing. I mean, I think about a new, a new film based off a, a book, uh, Ready Player One, and the entire premise is more or less that we are living in or heading toward this kind of virtual world, um, just escaping our, our surroundings for this make-believe world. Well, that's exactly what I'm, I'm talking about here. This is, if anything, the acceleration that Taylor talked about has increased. But ultimately, I think, as there are actually hints of in uh, Ready Player One, there are going to be, I believe, more and more people who realize that what's on the offing for us is a mirage, um, that ultimately what's true and good is what is in the heavens, um, what is around us, what's on the horizon, the people who are next to us. I think there's going to be a retrieval of that ultimately, and I believe that Reformed theology remains well-suited to be able to speak to the longings of that, of, of, of that, of that heart, because it goes all the way back to Augustine. We are restless in an idolatry that does not lead us to find our rest in God himself. That's the, that's the kind of the essence of a Reformed theology um, that, that is, again, uh, timeless and ultimately, I believe, biblical. So I think you're exactly right. If anything, these things have accelerated the last 10 years. Yeah, and I think you're right to put your finger on smartphones and emerging technologies as that, which is only deepening our disconnection from one another, but more importantly, from the divine. Both uh, Michael Horton and Carl Truman, in their own way, in this book, Our Secular Age, which you've edited, call attention to the fact that with Taylor himself, he doesn't necessarily leave us in an adequately grounded uh, place, meaning uh, Taylor may be critiquing late modernity, but his understanding of actual absolute truth and and divine reality may be lacking perhaps even a good bit. It struck me in in reading this book that pastors really do have an opportunity, not just to preach literally and, and these sorts of things, which are really important, but pastors actually need to make clear to their congregations that they are declaring actual reality in Christ. I, I, I think about this, Colin, as I go and speak about something like transgender, for example, as an issue. Right. What I try to communicate to folks is that this isn't simply a matter of how you manage you know, feelings of gender dysphoria. That, that is very much in view as well. But when we're talking about something like transgenderism, we're actually talking about an alternate picture of reality. And what the Christian church offers sinners of every kind is actual reality. So Charles Taylor may not provide that grounding uh, in his own philosophy, may or may not, that's up for debate, but at the very least, the Word of God surely does, as pastors declare that weekly. Yeah, I would add, Owen, uh, one of the ironies of us 
doing this book on Charles Taylor is that he would see us at the Gospel Coalition and Reformed theologians as part of the problem. Um, so he <laughs> identifies the Reformation as basically one of the major factors of what's led to this disenchantment. Um, so more or less, if I can describe Taylor adequately, which is probably not <laughs> not going to happen, but I'll do my best. <laughs> yeah. One of the things he's trying to say is that you know, back then in the Catholic medieval world of Europe, they didn't expect everybody to live a fully Christian life. They just asked people to fulfill certain basic responsibilities, mm -hmm. and then they would kind of let people just blow off some steam at these festivals and things like that. But then, lo and behold, Martin Luther comes around and he says that every vocation is has dignity and purpose and meaning before God. And then John Calvin says, what if we didn't have, what if we didn't have a society with monasteries, but what if the entire world were a monastery where everybody lived before God, before the face of God? And Taylor says, that's just not realistic for people. They can't live that way. You just need to give them certain kinds of patterns to follow. So what we try to do in the book is more or less say, you know what? We actually do need patterns to follow. Mm -hmm. We actually do need certain rituals, and we need certain remembrances. And I would actually say, Owen, that previous generations of Christians across theological traditions did this pretty well, and much better than we tend to today. So we can amen with Taylor on a lot of that, but then we can amen even louder the Reformation principle that, no, in fact, this is a calling for all of God's people. And in fact, this is something that is within are grasped by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is not just for those people locked away in the monastery. And so you're right that there is a, a bit of an irony here in that we're not really commending Taylor's full agenda. Nevertheless, we are finding in him a, a particularly astute critic of late modernity who helps, who gives us some significant historical, sociological, and philosophical understanding. Yeah, I think that's well said. It's so interesting that he uses this language of enchantment, uh, which initially really appealed to me and attracted uh, his work to me. I'm writing a book now called Re-Enchanting Humanity, uh, in part because of Charles Taylor's language about the human condition and, and our, our human hope. Um, but, but the funny thing is, I agree with you completely, that what Taylor sees as disenchantment, uh, the Reformation recovering essentially the God-centeredness of all of life, not just for priests uh, and, and religious workers, but for everybody in all their spheres, provided they follow Christ, I, I see as enchantment. And, uh, and, and turning away from that kind of outlook is disenchantment. Um, but yeah, Taylor uses... He uses enchantment as a term in different ways throughout the text, so let's make that clear. But fundamentally, as a as a Catholic thinker, um, he sees the Reformation as basically messing things up, where you and I would say, okay, sure, the Reformation unleashes all sorts of consequences that were not foreseen by Luther and others, and, and some of them even did prove, um, you know, harmful in cases. But in the broader theological narrative, of history. My goodness, yes, this is where humanity rediscovers purpose and meaning, and, and you look back at uh, medieval Catholicism, and there are, at the very least, many instances of moral compromise and failure on the part of leadership and popes with not one but two or three mistresses and numerous illegitimate children, and 
bishops holding numerous churches simply to earn a, a greater living. I mean, you're looking back at that era, and you're not seeing a whole ton of enchantment, despite the fact that, yes, it was well, more liturgical. You're, you're exactly right, Owen, and you've, you've well encapsulated Michael Horton's critique of Taylor in this book, mm-hmm. which I think is, is very significant, where he comes back and he says, what was really the problem with the medieval world? Well, the biggest problem for the Church in the medieval world was the utter corruption. First of all, the, the kind of covering over of the Gospel, the, the sidelining of the Gospel, mm-hmm. the perversion of the Gospel. It reminds the old kind of recovery of the Book of the Law back in the dark days of, of Judah um, mm-hmm. in the Old Testament. That's what, it, that's what you get in the, in the Reformation. Um, but yeah, he, he makes that point of they had to bring in like just wagon loads of prostitutes to service mm. the bishop when they would come for the from the ecumenical councils or of the medieval period, or specifically the Council of Constance. Yeah, and like that that had more than anything to do uh, with what happened with the Reformation and ultimately a recovery of the gospel of grace. And recovery of the, the the new hearts and the new law written on our hearts that was that were prophesied in the Old Testament that are that belong to us who belong to Christ by birth, uh, through the Holy Spirit. So yeah, yeah. I love that critique. It's a very necessary one in this book where we do uh, appreciate the overall contribution. Yeah, if you want a uh, a Christianity that is formal and widely held, but rarely firmly believed, let's say that, then, yeah, the medieval era is is your bag, man. But if you want, yes, it's a boisterous world out there, and it's, it's crazy and wild and freewheeling, but if you want an actual order that allows religious liberty, and then hopefully that yields, you know, the growth of the true church, the church that is in Christ through his substitutionary death and vicarious resurrection, yeah, then, then you might be looking more towards the Reformation. And honestly, Colin, to kind of uh, square the circle here, many people are today. Many, many young people in particular are absolutely starving for transcendence. Um, we've really seen the younger generation, I would say, I want to hear what you think, reject the kind of big box evangelicalism with its sort of watered down teaching from the pulpit and focus on more practical things. Some folks like that, but a ton of the younger generation now going on 15 years wants the thick stuff, the meaty stuff, the weighty stuff that is going to anchor them amidst the storms of life. Do you, do you think that's accurate? Well, I couldn't agree more. Well, I'll just give you an example of this. Um, I mean, I see it everywhere I look. I see it everywhere in what I'm reading. There's a reason why at the Gospel Coalition we publish so much on the topic of suffering, because the fact is it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter what you believe. You will suffer in yes. this life, and ultimately you need to understand why. And the Bible is the only place that gives you any why. And the number one why it gives you is to look to Jesus Mm. on the cross, where we worship a suffering servant, a lamb who was slain for our sins. Um, I'm just thinking about this, Owen. Um, You know, we had a a wonderful Easter celebration recently in our church. It's a a Baptistic church in the Deep South. and, you know, there, I mean, for Easter, there were, there were definitely more than a thousand people there. The vast majority of whom were young, 20-somethings, maybe into their 30s. And the sermon was basically, what kind of difference does it make if you're delivered from 
your suffering right now because ultimately we're all still going to die. So what's the point of it all? The point of it is there is either a resurrection of Jesus Christ, which then makes all things new and which we can put our trust, or else there's no hope. Any prayer you offer for any any deliverance of what you're suffering right now is but temporal. Mm. It doesn't last. It, it's not. It's nothing that you can trust. I mean, that, Owen, really just nails the issue today. That's the truth. You mm. can... That, that is the only hope that you can truly stake your life on. And I do find people resonating with that because ultimately there is no hope that can come from endless five ways to fix your life sermon series mm-hmm. at your local big box evangelical church. Now, it may appeal to people for a certain time, and Charles Taylor would explain why it appeals to people, because it puts us at the center mm-hmm. of everything. It is the spirit of our age. But if we're going to call people to live for eternity, not for the spirit of this age, then we're going to have to take them back to these big truths of the Scriptures. Mm. Very well said. Yeah, this book, Our Secular Age, edited by Colin Hansen, my guest today, I commend to you the subtitle, 10 Years of Reading and Applying Charles Taylor. Uh, It took 10 years to publish this book because that's how long it takes to read A Secular Age by (laughs) Charles Taylor. So we are... We we expect true words, Owen. We expect further works in successive decades. But uh, no, in all seriousness, uh, a really rich book, readable, short. Um, one of these kind of books that honestly will will give you a ton to glean, uh, n- not just by pointing you to the really rich philosophical work of Charles Taylor. Before before we conclude here, Colin, you also have edited a book entitled Fifteen Things Seminary Couldn't Teach Me." And uh, you and Jeff Robinson, uh, great guy with the Gospel Coalition, have published this. Uh, can you give us a, a quick sense of what this book is after? Yeah, so essentially what we're finding, Owen, is that a lot of young men starting out in ministry, they're not making it. Sometimes they're not even making it three years, five years. And seminary is a wonderful place. You know, we started out this conversation talking about the wonderful experience that you and I shared in seminary. And I don't think you and I would would, uh, would trade that for anything. Mm-hmm. But we also went into it properly formed to understand that seminary can't teach us everything. It doesn't try to teach us everything that we could possibly need to know. And that's one reason why we had Albert Moeller, the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, write the foreword for us mm. um, to be able to underscore that very point that seminary is doing something absolutely vital but ultimately it's going to be the local church that calls you, and it's going to be the local church that makes you into a pastor. And so we, we, talk, we talk to veteran pastors across the country, across denominations, across ages, across ethnicities, um, to just ask them to cover some of these different topics. Um, I'm just really excited and hopeful about the way that it might be used in some residency programs, in some internships, just in informal relationships. Um, just to be able to help prepare people, because we certainly have, uh, you know, knowledge of God that comes. Um, we're trying to develop some knowledge of self as well, mm-hmm. um, and also we need to develop some some uh, some lived experiential knowledge of just the uh, the wonderful high calling of being a pastor. And so 
that's what we're hopeful that the book is go- what the book is going to accomplish. It's also been in the works for several years. My chapter is the concluding one. Uh, you'll appreciate it, Owen, because it's about what you do. You know, seminary doesn't teach you what to do when you don't get hired mm. by a church. That was my experience. And so mm. we're hopeful how this is going to help uh, perhaps even generations of pastors to serve their, their congregations, but ultimately God uh, well. Well, Colin, I really appreciate that point. I think that's so important. Uh, seminaries certainly cannot teach seminarians all they need to know. Uh, but more importantly, I'm really thankful for your ministry. It's a ministry that is geared toward theological formation, uh, anchored in the gospel of grace. So, Colin, you're, you're a dear friend, and you're doing great work. Thanks for being on the podcast today. Thank you. Bye, Owen. Thanks for listening to City of God, a podcast at the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. We're so thankful you stopped by. We encourage you to continue to join the conversation at cpt.mbts.edu, the official website of the center. And we encourage you to follow us on Twitter and Facebook as well. Join us in coming days as we continue the conversation on what it means to be the city of God in the city of man. Midwestern Seminary's Doctor of Philosophy degree program is designed to equip leaders interested in building up the church. The Ph.D. Biblical Studies program at Midwestern Seminary provides opportunities for advanced research and preparation in theology in an environment passionate about God's primary plan for the advancement of the gospel, the local church. Choose from multiple emphases and let your advanced degree open up new opportunities for ministry in our rapidly changing world. With our modular program of study, you can remain in your current ministry setting. But we've also recently introduced the residency, an experiential component to the Ph.D. track where local doctoral students receive one-on-one coaching and mentoring and a community context in which to bolster their studies. Get your Ph.D. today for the church.